If you could bring Billy Graham back for one more mission, where would you send him? To a dark city like Dubai or Las Vegas? Maybe to a meeting of the UN or a G20 summit? Maybe to Burning Man or Comic-Con? <laughs> Speaking of which, there's a really excellent video on YouTube. It's from the year 2000, and it's Billy Graham speaking at a TED Talk, a TED Technology Conference, and uh, he does one of the talks. Go look it up. It's so good. It's great. But who thought that Billy Graham would show up at a TED Talk at a technology conference? There are a lot of places for a lot of reasons. If we give our imaginations room to run, there aren't enough pins for the map in our minds. This is why the church sends out countless missionaries, right? Uh, It's not just Billy Graham that goes. It's all sorts of folks, both short-term and long-term, volunteer, ordained to every corner of the earth. We can see in the book of Acts and throughout history that the targets of missions work have shifted and changed. Places that were once a hotbed of evangelism and mission and revival give way to new destinations and new locales. That ongoing evolution can be seen in recent years by looking at who is sending missionaries out and who is receiving them. I was sort of surprised to learn that while the United States is still the number one exporter of missionaries, as of 2010, we also are the number one recipient of missionaries. Kind of interesting. In fact, in 2013, the Center for the Study of Global Christianity started reporting on what they call the reverse mission, where younger churches in the global south are now sending missionaries to Europe. Nearly half of the top 20 mission-sending countries in 2010 were in the global south, including Brazil, India, the Philippines, and Mexico. Now, where should Christians be going with the gospel? It's an important question, of course. Left to our own devices, there are innumerable answers. None of us could cover all the ground that there is to cover. After all, what place doesn't God want to reach with his good news? His goal is every place. His goal is every heart. We know that. And if we were to prioritize targets for mission, it's likely that a place like Costa Mesa wouldn't make the top 10, right, of most important places to send a missionary. Or Transylvania. Did you know that there was revival in the 19th century in Transylvania? There was. I thought thought it was was only a vampire revival, but it turns out it's regular people. How about Wales in 1904? These are interesting places. History shows that God the Holy Spirit has a lot of very specific and often very peculiar places in mind when it comes to the spread of the gospel. And not only does he have specific places in mind, he has specific people in mind who he wants to use in those peculiar places. In Acts 13, we have the beginning of what we commonly call Paul's first missionary journey. After years of preparation and faithful service, he's going to start doing one of the things that we most associate him with, going into the Gentile world to preach the gospel to anyone who would listen. When we think of Paul and his ministry, there's really two things that rise to the surface. The writing of epistles in the New Testament, and then his work going out as a missionary. That's certainly not all he did. He's been spending a few years here in Antioch serving. In Acts 13, he is launched, not by his own impulse or his own desire or his own plan, but by the specific call of the Holy Spirit. 
As he and Barnabas and the church body in Antioch respond, we see some wonderful gains on behalf of the kingdom, but we must also recognize submission, some struggles, and sacrifices that are a part of following the Lord when undertaking such a work. Verse one says this, now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who's called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Again, just for your reference, Herod the Tetrarch, he's the one that killed John the Baptist. This guy, Menaean, we don't know a lot about him other than that. He was probably the foster brother of Herod. He probably saw some things before he became a Christian. As we embark on this first great adventure with Paul and Barnabas, we are reminded that they were connected and moored to a local church. The church at Antioch is what Luke says. You know, we hear all the time that sentiment that the church is not a building, and of course that's true. I don't think any Christian goes and says, that's the church, that empty building, that shell of wood and stucco and drywall, that's the church. Nobody thinks that. But there is a sentiment out there today that the church is only the universal aspect of belonging to Christ. Therefore, the idea goes, I don't need to really connect myself, submit myself to a local congregation because after all, I'm a Christian and therefore I am the church no matter where I am or no matter what I'm doing. This is a, I don't know if it's an idea growing in popularity, but it's an idea that is broadcast very vocally by some people uh, on the internet and in podcasts and different things like that. The apostles simply didn't think that way. The writers of the New Testament didn't think that way. While it's clear that all Christians are a part of a universal family, all one body, all one bride, Yet it's equally clear that local congregations of actual people who live in a certain place, who meet together, that's a necessity and a given. It's a requirement. It's part of the the deal. Luke says here, in the church at Antioch, it was identifiable. It was a group of people who were involved with each other, regularly associating and gathering for worship and instruction. It was also a group that was independent from the church in Jerusalem. Yet they were simultaneously unified with them by bonds of love and by the teaching of the apostles. When the Christians in Judea were suffering a few passages ago, what happened? Antioch came to the rescue. On the other hand, when it was time to send out missionaries, Antioch didn't wait for a go-ahead or a flow chart from Jerusalem. And so what we see here is a very plain organization an independent body of believers who were meeting regularly, who had a common fellowship with all other Christians all over, but operating as, an, as their own unit. Now, in this local fellowship at Antioch, things were going great. And the, the brothers there were all part of the group. And that's a good thing. Of all the people who could have said, you know what, I am the church. It's Paul the Apostle. And he did go out a lot and establish new churches, but what happened when he came back? He came back to places like Antioch or places like Jerusalem to give an account to his brothers and sisters in the churches there. Today, there are many Christians who, for one reason or another, don't feel the need to be a part of a local church. But you know, I was thinking, that's like saying, I'm an independent soldier. (laughs) Hmm... I'm generally part of the army, but I don't belong to a platoon or a brigade or anything like that. I'm my own soldier. I go where I, and wherever I go, I'm the army. 
Yeah, there's a term for that. It's called AWOL. And uh, it's an unacceptable form of service, right? Anybody would look at that and say, nope, that's not allowed. That's not right. And so we need to kind of stop and rethink some of these things that we hear uh, that are either floating on social media or, or those sorts of things. Now, in this local fellowship at Antioch, things were going great. The church was thriving. We've seen that they had effective evangelists, which led to great numbers of people being saved and joining in the fellowship. They had incredible apostolic teaching. They were full of grace and full of generosity. And here in verse one, we see they represented a wonderful diversity as well, the diversity that was found in the city of Antioch. There in the leadership, you had older men and younger men, men from all sorts of backgrounds, different nations. They were very well set up and doing incredible work in this important hub city there in Syria. And we noticed that they were a group of Christians who were intimately connected with one another. They were a real nickname crowd. Have you noticed that? The, the first century Christians, they were a real nickname crowd. And, you know, I think that's a trait carried over from Jesus' style. Jesus liked to give people nicknames. You know who you guys are? You're the sons of thunder. Hey, sons of thunder, come on over here. And we see that these guys are a nickname crowd. A little bit of trivia. What was Barnabas' real name? Who knows? Barnabas isn't his real name. That's his nickname. He's from the tribe of Levi. Joseph is his real name. Oh, well, yeah, we don't even know that. He just goes by his nickname. These are people who are intimately connected and they're full of joy and they're full of fellowship. It says that some of these leaders were prophets. What does that mean? Well, from what we can tell in these early years before the New Testament was completed, there was a church office of prophet like there was the office of the apostle. While the office no longer exists, we recognize that the gift of prophecy continues today. So what does it mean to be a prophet in that sense? Well, these prophets did at times tell the future. We've already seen that happen before in Acts. We'll see it again. These prophets also had a particular gift for speaking forth the word of God. And we would add that they had a special gift for understanding the Old Testament in light of Christ and the cross and the resurrection. If we've learned anything about this transition from Judaism into Christianity, right, as people accept Jesus, their Messiah, we realize that they've had to make all of these changes. We were laughing with the kids the other morning as we were reading the, you know, the Bible stories with them. And it says, and Jesus said, it was explaining to them how he was going to die, but three days later, he would rise from the dead. And the disciples didn't know what he meant. What is he talking about? You have to, these people were steeped in their scriptures, but now their com understanding was being completely uh, recalibrated to the fact that the Messiah had come, and here he is, and he died and rose again. And so... We would say that these guys who were prophets also served to give special insight into the understanding of the Old Testament in, the, in light of the church age. Verse two says, as they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Where it says they were worshiping the Lord, your translation may say ministering to the Lord, and that's a better sense of what is written here and what was happening. The term Luke used is one used for temple service in the Old Testament. As they were carrying out the, the service in the house of the Lord, ministering to God. When these believers went to church in Antioch, they saw it as an opportunity for them to minister to the Lord. Of course, in the church, we receive help and encouragement and are built up and we get instruction and wisdom and all of those sorts of things, all sorts of benefits. But a verse like this one reminds us that 
our gathering together is not primarily for our benefit. We're going to benefit by gathering together in all sorts of ways. But God's people coming together in a local congregation, in a local church, the primary reason is not that we would benefit, but that the Lord might be glorified and worshiped and ministered to by us. He's the object of attention when we show up to church. And we would say that this is one of the um, missteps of what is sometimes commonly referred to as the seeker-sensitive model of ministry, where the focus is on how can we make people sitting in the seats be as comfortable and as pleased and as, you know, sort of feel good as possible, and so that hopefully they will eventually feel like being a Christian might be a good thing. I, we understand we don't want to make things uncomfortable for people, and we don't want, you know, people to be burdened in any way, but when we gather together, the focus of our attention is Jesus Christ, our Lord. We're here to worship the King, and in the meantime, we will be benefited because our Lord is the Lord of grace and generosity. He's a Lord who loves to lavish gifts on his people as he speaks to us and sings over us, but we're here for him, right? It's a, maybe a subtle shift in our mind, but it's an important one. In this case, it seems the church at Antioch was specifically looking for the Lord's leading in some sort of meeting. They were fasting and listening for direction. Sometimes Christians argue about fasting, whether we need to do it uh, today or not. All we can say is this, the Christians in the New Testament fasted. They just did. Uh, we should individually and as a local church explore it as a practice. Uh, there's nothing wrong with fasting, uh, but you know, at the same time, the church didn't say you have to fast two times a week. That's what the rabbis said back in you know, Israel, but you know, the early church fasted, and they never said, don't fast. And Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, said, when you pray, when you give, when you fast. And so we just need to uh, lay that before the Lord and have him lead us in it according to his purposes. As they fasted and listened, the Spirit gave this very specific call to them. Now, how did this work? Was there an audible voice? Maybe. It's not outside the realm of possibility, but it seems more likely, given the context, that God spoke this message through one of the prophets listed in verse 1. However they were led, what they were supposed to do was clear. Set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work for which they were called, for a specific job that God had for them at the time. So does this mean that they weren't doing what God had set them apart to be doing? Not at all. In fact, these guys had been really busy ministering to people and exercising their gifts as they lived out their regular Christian lives day in and day out. And that included a lot of service to the Lord and worship of the Lord and ministering to the people around them. But now, in this instance, God was setting before them a specific job, a specific mission to go and accomplish Hey, I, it's time in my providential plan for you to send Barnabas and Saul out on this journey. Go ahead and do that. Let's take note of the fact that Paul and Barnabas weren't just sitting around waiting for the time when they'd be missionaries overseas. This is a sickness that sometimes plagues well-meaning Christians. They're convinced that God has placed a certain call on their lives or given them certain gifts that they're going to use at some point. That's fine. That's great. The problem is while they wait for their spiritual at-bat to come around, they refuse to do other ministry. They say, oh, I'm just going to sit. I'm going to wait. 
The classic example that's easy to use is, you know, fellows who think, well, I'm called to be a pastor. I'm called to teach in front of people. Okay, can you push this broom? No, 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 I'm, I'm gifted to teach. And I'm, you know, if you have an opportunity for me to teach, then I'll do that. Okay, can you be an usher? Can you help clean? Can you work in the, you know, do this or do that? I'm gifted to teach. Paul and Barnabas didn't do that. They didn't do anything like that. Paul didn't act that way. Now listen, he knew from the day he was converted that he'd be preaching to many, to kings, God told him, far into the Roman Empire. But while he waited for his launch date, while he waited for that at bat, as it were, what have we seen him doing? Serving, growing, being a part of the church, being a part of worship, being a part of prayer, bringing relief to those who need it. They didn't need Paul to carry a sack of money down to Judea and hand it out. There's other people who could do that, right? But Paul didn't say, I'm too important and I'm too gifted to do that. He said, what can I do to serve and glorify the Lord today? Now, on the other side of things, imagine what this would have meant for the church in Antioch. Try to put yourself there. They were being asked to give up two of their most beloved and gifted leaders for years and years. This would be a significant sacrifice for them. But God came and asked them to willfully give these guys up for a time. When it says set apart there, the idea is God says, hey, please release Paul and Barnabas, cooperate with me, let them go free so they can do this job. And as always, the Lord wanted there be a gracious unity in the church. Verse three says, then after they had fasted, prayed, and laid hands on them, they sent them off. They fasted and prayed again, They were people who were full of faith, but they weren't hasty. They weren't in a rush. We've seen the laying on of hands quite a few times in the book already. We've seen it previously in healing, of course. We've also seen it being done to confer the Holy Spirit or to confer spiritual gifts. We'll see it to set people out to ministry like tonight. Listen, there's nothing magical about it. The laying on of hands, it's not a magical thing. We don't want to make the same mistake that Simon Magus made back in chapter eight, right? He saw them laying on hands. He's like, ooh, I want some of that power. There's nothing mystical about it. It's simply a way that Christians can show affection for one another and show that we identify with each other and that we're connected and that we acknowledge together what the Lord is doing in a person's life. The believers in Antioch are an inspiring example of generosity. Think about what we've learned about them in previous passages and tonight. They didn't withhold the gospel from their pagan neighbors. They didn't withhold their resources from those in need. They didn't withhold their precious Barnabas and Paul from the world at large. I mean, really, can you imagine Paul the apostle being one of your pastors for years and then having someone come to you and say, you wanna let this guy go? You wanna let this guy just go out into some nowhere and maybe never come back? I want Paul to minister to me. <laughs> I, need, I need ministry too. Why can't, why can't somebody else go? But they submitted, they sacrificed, they sent them off. Verse four says, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, pause. Notice this, it's so important. They were not sent by the design of the church. They weren't sent by some strategic initiative. They weren't sent by some demographic research or some plan of Paul, some great dream that he had. They were sent by the Holy Spirit. It was his plan, it was his purpose. The whole world was in need of the gospel. How could they know where to go? Some commentators suggest at this point that Paul and Barnabas decided on their own to go to Cyprus since after all, that's where Barnabas was from. What? That makes no sense. 
the Holy Spirit had a specific itinerary in mind, a specific timeline in mind, and of course he had specific places in mind. He's the one who sent them. Verse four continues. They went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus, arriving in Salamis. They proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. They also had John as their assistant. When they had traveled the whole island as far as Paphos, stop right there. The island of Cyprus is about 130 miles long. As far as square mileage goes, it's about twice the size of Kings County. It was a deeply pagan place, like most of the world at the time. It also had a large Jewish population. We note that because of the presence of multiple synagogues they were able to visit. Why did Paul and Barnabas make it a habit of going first to the synagogues? This wasn't just for this trip. This was the pattern of Paul throughout his ministry. Paul was, after all, called to the Gentiles, right? We say that, right? Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. Sure, but that's not quite the whole thing. You know, he wasn't called to go minister to the Gentiles at the expense of the Jews. In fact, Jesus had told them on the Damascus Road that he'd speak to Gentiles, kings, and Israelites, right? So Paul preached to everyone. And these two men were, of course, Jews themselves. They had an undying love for their countrymen. And going to synagogues was a natural and reliable way to start a preaching ministry in a given city because as tradition would have it, visitors like Paul would be invited to share a message to the assembled group. This is a bad tradition. I'm gonna go on record as saying that. It was good for them, but we're not gonna do that today. Who's a stranger? You wanna come up and address the whole group? But this is the way things went in the synagogues and praise the Lord that it did, that this was a mechanism. It was just part of God's grace. He says, you know what? By my providence, I'm gonna make this a tradition that we're gonna let people, you know, traveling people like Paul and Barnabas be able to get up and address the group from the word of God. And so they did so. So it's natural that they would go to synagogues and, and share there. They were able to quickly then make connections and proclaim Jesus Christ and word would travel fast. We know it would travel fast from what we've seen already in the book, but also in a moment here, we'll see that by the time they get to the capital city on the other side of the island, the governor already knows all about their trip. And so word traveled fast back then, especially about these spiritual things as the Holy Spirit put wings to this message. Luke gives us a piece of information that will become very important later on. John Mark came along as their assistant, we're told. This was no cushy job, after all, Paul traveled by ambulance a lot more than he did limousine. Uh, But John Mark here, he's not dead weight. He's not just along for the ride. He is their assistant. In fact, the term used there means under oarsman. Think Ben-Hur, but without the beatings, right? I mean, they're just, just rowing and rowing and rowing. John would have been helping with menial work. He would have been helping making the travel arrangements, carrying bags, doing those sorts of things. Perhaps he was involved in the ministry side too as well, but there's a lot of hard work to be done for sure. Church work, missions work, requires a lot of effort. Whether it's local or overseas, the work of the ministry requires a lot of effort. We are so thankful that Calvary Hanford has always been a church full of hard workers who are willing to step up and do what needs doing. It blesses our hearts. We have a wonderfully servant-hearted fellowship here. And that's saying something. It says there at the beginning of verse six, they traveled the whole island. 
We're not sure how long it took them, but what a great testimony to be able to say that they were able to cover the whole area. Sort of reminds me of those stupid maps that Verizon and T-Mobile always flash on the screen to show their coverage of their network. And uh, this is how far we can reach now. How come when I go up to family camp, I can't call anyone then is the question. But I would pray that the Lord would, by his sovereign will, increase our coverage of ministry. This isn't the point where we pull out a map of Hanford and say, now we're going to have a three-point plan to cover Kings County or covered Hanford. That's not what these guys, that's not the way they did things. They followed the leading of the Holy Spirit. But we pray that the Lord would increase our coverage of ministry as he desires. There in Paphos, we pick back up verse six. They came across a sorcerer, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. This guy had a lot going on. It's packed all in there in that phrase. The name he went by, he had given himself, was Son of the Savior, Son of Jesus. He probably was making a lot of weird claims about his pedigree. He was involved in strange occult practices, sorcery back then. He was a mixture of chemistry and alchemy, occult and science. There was all kinds of weird stuff going on. He had a Jewish heritage. He should have known better. Uh, they, the, the, the Jewish teaching was you, you had to kill people like this who were practicing witchcraft and those sorts of things. So he's got a lot going on. And we'll find that he has made his way into the Capitol building where he wielded influence over the governor of Cyprus. God had defeated one of Satan's servants in the last passage, Herod, but the battle continues. There will always be additional opposition to the Lord's work as long as we're on this earth. Verse 7 says, he was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and wanted to hear the word of God. So this governor, what we know of him is that he was thirsty for spiritual things. And we're told he was a thoughtful, intelligent man. Unfortunately, being smart doesn't guarantee that a person won't be taken advantage of by the devil, right? He can be the smartest guy in the room, and be the most held captive by the devil and under his sway. As an aside, one of the great and wonderful privileges that we have as Americans is to vote for our leaders. It's the kind of thing that people in Judea did not have the opportunity to do, right? It's a wonderful aspect of our life in this country. When those opportunities come around, let's remember that intelligence or worldly success, those are not enough. Those are not the end goal of leadership in our spiritual lives or, and in our nation. If, if we're being given a voice about who's gonna lead our nation, well, we know that being smart and being successful, that's not enough. Look, an intelligent man is susceptible to the bar Jesuses that the devil sends their way. And so we want leaders who are people of wisdom and integrity. They are very rare, but they are possible and they exist. Men and women like Daniel and Nehemiah and some of these other characters that show us what it means to be a civic leader, even in times of great strain. Verse eight says, but Elymas, the sorcerer, that's the meaning of his name, opposed them, tried to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Matthew Henry wrote, Satan is in a special manner busy with great men and men in power to keep them from being religious for their example will influence many. You know, a Capitol building is a perfect place for our enemy to attack. Look at the situation around us today. Look at how quickly a person with power can do all sorts of things. Even with all the freedoms we're meant to have in this nation, suddenly a very few have almost limitless power in our society. 
Imagine during the time we find ourselves in how different things would be if our leaders were spirit-filled, Bible-believing Christians, right? And so I just tuck that away uh, next time a November comes around. <laughs> now, of course, by then we won't have any elections, but that's, a, that's, a, that's an aside. Anyway, now whenever I picture this interaction between Paul and Bar Jesus, I always think of it as sort of a quick thing. It's like that in my mind, it plays like that scene in The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, when Gandalf and the good guys drive out Grima Wormtongue, who's poisoning the mind of King Theoden. And it's a pretty quick showdown, right? They just kind of sweep him out. But that might not be how it happened here. We're not exactly sure. Luke is clearly being pretty light on details about this whole trip across the island. They spent some uh, significant time there. Stuff was happening. And it seems like he's moving kind of quickly. We don't know exactly how it played out, but in Paphos today, you can go there someday if you can get on an airplane. You can visit what is called St. Paul's Column, something that has been uncovered by archaeology. Now listen, this is a tradition, a local tradition, and it's extra biblical, so we can't be sure. But the story that has been handed down is that Bar-Jesus first used his influence to cause Paul to be tortured there, to be scourged. Some suggest that when, when Paul says, yeah, I was given 39 lashes, lashes, you know, five times minus one. There's some evidence to say that it all happened right there at this column. And so we're not sure. But, you know, what is true is that Paul, who won great territory for Christ's kingdom, who pioneered work in places no one else had ever gone, the great victor of the faith, he nevertheless also suffered great injuries and great harm, and he made great sacrifices in his service to Jesus Christ, because that's part of it. Now, Paul had a special amount of suffering attached to his calling, right? From the beginning, what did Jesus say? He told Ananias, he said, and go tell that guy how many great things he's going to have to suffer for my name. But the truth is, that attachment, maybe not to the magnitude of Paul, but the attachment of suffering is guaranteed to all of us as God's people. In this world, you will have trouble and tribulation of one form and another, but be of good cheer because our Lord has overcome the world. Verse nine says, but Saul, also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, stared straight at Elymas and said, you are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery, you son of the devil, an enemy of all that is right. Won't you ever stop perverting the straight paths of the Lord? One of the terrific themes in the book of Acts is that if we're in the will of God as Christians, you and I don't need to be intimidated by anyone, not by anyone, not by Herod, not by Bar-Jesus, not by angry silversmiths who are going to tear us apart, not by Sadducees and all their regalia, not by Roman soldiers. Paul could be sure of the power of God because he was walking in obedience to the will of God. Now here, Paul spoke very sternly to be sure. But lives were hanging in the balance. Eternities were hanging in the balance. This guy, Bar-Jesus, was engaging in a campaign of opposition in the hopes that Sergius Paulus would not get saved. Paul rightfully calls him out. He says, you're going around telling people you're the son of the Savior. You're the son of the devil. You're trying to drive people away from Jesus Christ. Verse 11, now look, the Lord's hand is against you. You're going to be blind and will not see the sun for a time. Immediately a mist and a darkness fell on him and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. I don't know if he had his own flurry like Olaf in Frozen. <laughs> Some kind of weird mist thing happening. I don't know. 
But you know, in wrath, God remembers mercy. Bar-Jesus wasn't struck dead, though he deserved it. He wasn't even made permanently blind, though he deserved that too. Rather, this physical judgment would be temporary, as it had been for Paul himself. Paul knew what it was like to have his vision taken away, to think he was this great religious man, and then suddenly, like that, after an encounter with Jesus Christ, be knocked down and said, you know what? You are galloping down the road that leads to hell, and you better turn around, and you better embrace the Savior. We hope that Bar-Jesus would see the darkness he was living in and turn to faith in Christ. We don't know if he did or not. What we do know is that God has mercy even on this kind of person. People like Saul of Tarsus. People like Bar-Jesus. God will save them if they will repent and turn to him. Verse 12, then when he saw what happened, the proconsul believed because he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. The message had power. The gospel always has power in every place. There's nowhere the gospel doesn't work. But one of the reasons that their message was so effective and powerful was because they were in the will of God and in the place he had asked them to go. You know, eventually we're gonna make it to Acts 19 where there are some guys well-meaning, wanting to do, you know, heavenly work, and they take it on themselves to go cast out some demons. It goes very poorly for them. They hadn't been set apart for that work. They weren't operating under the Holy Spirit's initiative. They were operating under their own initiative. So how do we apply all of this? Do we wait to do spiritual things until we get a nearly audible message from the Holy Spirit? No, that's not what Paul did. We see he busied himself with spiritual service. He even made plans to go certain places. This is a theme in his life. He was always making plans. I wanna go to Asia. I wanna go to Spain. I wanna go to Rome. Let's figure out if we can go there. But as he was serving and as he was hoping to do these different missions and tasks for the Lord, he and the other Christians in this book were very sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. They wanted to be specifically directed and took that seriously. When they got an idea about something they wanted to do for the Lord, they prayed about it and looked into it. But if the Lord said, no, not you or not now, which he often did, they didn't force the issue. In the meantime, they lived out their faith as fully as they could in the place where they found themselves until the Lord presented them with some new task, some new opportunity, be it long-term or short-term, near or far. We began with the question of where would we send Billy Graham for one last mission? The truth is we're living out that question with ourselves as Billy Graham. You're the Billy Graham. You're the person in that equation. You and I are under the same commission he was, given the same spirit he was, part of the same universal body he was. The only difference is that we're alive on the earth right now and he is alive in the presence of Jesus Christ. We can continue the work that he can no longer do. And before us is a huge world that none of us could hope to cover on our own. And so, am I supposed to go to Costa Mesa like Chuck Smith or Africa like David Livingston? Am I supposed to stay in Antioch like Lucius or leave for a time like Paul? Does God want me to be a Barnabas or does God need me to be a John Mark today? These are questions we cannot answer. And when humans get together and try to figure it out strategically or demographically or what makes sense to us, it's a problem. And it doesn't lead to the kind of effective power that we see demonstrated in the book of Acts. We can't answer these questions, but the Holy Spirit can. He has peculiar missions set apart for us. 
And he invites us to discover them as we operate within a local church, living out the regular Christian life, ministering to the Lord. Dana Roberts, an author of a book called Christian Mission, How Christianity Became a World Religion, she assessed today's mentality when it comes to missions, and here's what she says. The current situation is almost a total free-for-all. That's not really a great thing because Acts reminds us that God has a specific plan for his church universal, for our church local, for each of our lives individual. We are free to line up with him or to go our own way. We know the better choice to make. What we need to do is wait on the Lord minister to him, serve one another, and when he sets us apart and calls us, be ready to go.